Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, July 12, 2020, called Word of God Speak, From Slaves to Sons, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 15a. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. God's grace and his mercy and his peace are yours in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And uh, we'll follow an outline here. And I don't know how many of you take a paper bulletin. And if not, maybe you have access to the scripture um, on your phone or something else. It wouldn't hurt to check that out. Romans chapter 8, it's those few verses from 12 to 17. But some of the most beloved and, and very powerful verses in all, of the, in all of Scripture as Paul writes to the church in Rome. You know, I was remembering, um, I, what I really want to do is make a transition from Pastor Von Bush's uh, sermon last week where he talked in chapter 6. He spoke about chapter 6, and then now we're jumping ahead to chapter, chapter 8. His, uh, the, the end of his sermon last week, which I thought was so powerful and so helpful to me, was he used those very familiar words that many of you know by heart. The wages of sin is death, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? So my first job that I ever had, the first job where I actually got a paycheck, you know, a pay stub, because uh, I had worked for a couple of years. There was a pizzeria. I grew up in Queens in New York City, and across the street from us was a pizzeria. So from the time I was about 13, I worked for a couple, three years at the pizzeria after they're making money and mowing lawns, you know, and doing all that kind of stuff. And everybody pays you under the table, just gives you cash, you know, does that kind of thing. But I remember the first job that I had for a paycheck was Burger King. So I worked in Burger King. And, you know, you go through the interview and they tell you how much you're going to get paid, what the minimum wage was. Minimum wage then was about 18 cents an hour. Just kidding. I think it was two bucks. I'm pretty sure in that era for me it was about two bucks. And so, um, and so you're, 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 um, you sit down in the interview and they tell you what it is and all of that. And then here's when you work, here's how many hours you get. And if it's overtime, it's this, blah, blah, blah. And I can do the math. I'm in high school. I can do the math. So I add it up. Get that first paycheck. You're waiting for that first paycheck. Here it comes. And it's about a third of what you thought it was going to be. It's what it seems like anyway. Do you remember those feelings? You get that paycheck and out of it, and they go, what's this FICA thing? And then there's Social Security. And then there's, you know, there's all that. There's income tax. And then there's meals. You didn't tell me I had to pay for meals, you know, and all of this different stuff. Uniform and burr, burr, burr. There's all these deductions that came out of it. It stunk. And I had the worst of all jobs because... My job was I worked the clothes, and I worked the grill. And at Burger King, you know, it's frame, flame broiled. And they would give me a Brillo pad. Remember those? Do they still make those? Brillo pad. And my job was to clean the hood. And so I got home about 2 in the morning, and you were just full of soot. And it was something. You want to never eat a frame broiled burger ever again in your life is what you don't ever want to do. But then... But then, to work my way through college, because my parents had this deal with me, we'll pay the first couple of years, you're on your own after that. So, that was, so I said, okay. And I worked my tail off, and I, every summer, in, I came back and I worked, and I got a job in LaGuardia Airport, and I started as a dishwasher in the Terrace restaurant. It was the fancy restaurant in LaGuardia Airport. 
And I, and, and I was one of those guys that when the boss came in and said, somebody's sick, who knows how to bust tables? I would say, I do. I didn't know nothing. I would go, I do. And then the next thing was the waiter. Waiter didn't show up. He was sick. Who, who can wait tables? I will. You know, or who can bartend? I'll do it. And so I did that all the time, and I faked it till I made it, you know? And you just kind of made your way. Because I watched those guys, and I could see, and I was pretty, I could pay attention. I could make my way. But they made tips. They were tipped employees. And I said, that's a deal. That's pretty good, because my paycheck as a dishwasher was really bad. But the money I went home with, the big wad of money I went home with as a waiter or a bartender, was really different. And you know what was different about that was because as a waiter, and I'm not into the modern iteration of waiters, many of whom want to sit in the booth next to you. I'm like, get out. Get out. <laughs> and so I'm the kind of waiter that says, I, was, I wanted to be attentive. I was there as soon as you sat down. How are you doing? How's your name? How can I help you? I didn't say, hi, my name is Jonathan and I'm serving you tonight. They don't care. I just wanted to say, how can I help your experience be great? What can I do to help you be great? And so that was my whole thing. But in the end, over time, if you're attentive and you're kind and you don't argue with people and you make it right for them, they tip you pretty well. And it's, instead of transactional, it becomes relational. And, and it's interesting because when Paul says this thing in chapter 6, and wouldn't you agree with me? Transactional, I get it. There's a balance sheet, and if your service is rendered and you perform a certain way, I get that transaction. But how much better is it when it's relational? You know, I'll embarrass my friend Jack Mooney here too, but I'll never have a dentist like Jack Mooney in my life. I'll never have another one. Like, I don't think. And I love Kyle. But Jack's my friend. And so it's different, isn't it? Transactional or relational. And that's what Paul is saying. If you look at that in your Bible, in Romans 6, the very last verse of 6, that the wages of sin is death, right? The law is transactional. That's what you get for being bad, right? Being rebellious, being sinful. The wages of sin is a transaction which results in death. But the gift of God, and I, this is where I love this, is eternal life, right? Through Jesus Christ. Actually, it's wrong translation. In Christ. Paul uses that dozens of times. It's a phrase. It's very specific to Paul. En Christo. That's why my life in Christ class is called that. En Christo. You are in Christ. And Christ is in you. And so it's relational. The gift, the gift is not like some, some payoff in which you get to, I don't know, sit on a cloud and play a harp, which sounds horrible to me. It allows you to be in Christ, with Christ, Christ in you. It's a relational thing. The wages of sin, death, but the gift is Christ. And so we have Christ. And because we have Christ, we have all things. We are in the will. We are children of God. That's where this is going. Because Paul then goes into this lengthy thing in Romans 7, this whole chapter in 7. And I tell Christians often, you should read Romans 7 and 8 once a year in detail. You should spend some time in it, but you should read Romans 7 and then Romans 8. It is the most honest picture of the, of the journey of the Christian that I know of. It resonates with me. Maybe it won't resonate with all of you. But Paul in 7 just goes on and on. I, I know better, is what he says. Have you never said that to yourself? 
Lord, I know better. I want to do your will. Uh, don't we? We do. We want to honor the Lord. And then I go, but why do I still think and act and speak? Why do I do that? And I get mad at myself and I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. And that's how Paul says it. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this veil of tears? So we're playing softball. We have a softball team here at Grace. Have for a long time. This year, we didn't know if there'd be a season. And so we started six weeks late and we scrambled and scrambled to get enough people to play kind of desperately because I have been playing softball in a league in a city somewhere since I've been 14. I am going to be 60 this year, so that's a long time. I've been playing 45 years, 46 years, been playing softball competitively on anywhere from one to four teams a year. Just my, that's the game I play. I didn't want to miss another season, so I begged guys and we got on the team. But we're not very good. <laughs> yet. Let's say it that way. Yet. We, uh, we lost like our first six games. It was not good. And one of the games I missed, uh, Ryan calls me up because Ryan's managing the team. Ryan goes, uh, yeah, they have this new rule. Because now they have all the teams in one league. All the men's teams are in one league because they only have like half the team. So the A teams and the C teams are all together. So they have this rule that if you're behind by 10 runs after four innings, when you're up next, if you're behind by that much, you get to start with the bases loaded. If you're behind by 15 runs, you get the bases loaded and you get four outs. We call it the you suck rule. That's what we call it. I'm sorry this is going online and now permanently, but it is hilarious because it is true is what's bad. So one of our first games, it's just, I was not there, but I, that's what Ryan said. He said, yeah, they had the you suck rule <laughs> and we couldn't catch up. Anyway, last game, we finally won one and the other team had to do it. We were so far ahead, so yay. Um, but that's what Paul is doing. What's interesting is he's saying, because really it's kind of funny when we say that, because we said it about ourselves. It wasn't the other team saying it to us. Ah, you suck. No, no, we said it's the you suck rule because we suck. And we need all the help we can get. That's what Paul's saying in Roman 8. This is the we suck rule. I cannot fix myself. I cannot beat. I cannot get right. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this veil of tears? And then my single favorite verse in all of Scripture, Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 8 goes on to talk about this sonship idea. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. We are those who are privileged to call upon God as Abba, Father. He puts that spirit of sonship in our hearts. Now, ladies, let me talk to you about this for a minute because as I read it, and I read the Greek, and it is those male terms, sons of God. This newer version of the NIV says sons and daughters, children of God. It doesn't say that. It says sons. Let me tell you how cool this is for you. Ladies, I'm just talking to you. This is, not, this is not an insult upon your femininity, right? This is not about that you have second-class citizen as women. You know what Paul is doing here? I did very careful study on this. What Paul is doing is he says, ladies, even you get to be the firstborn son. Because in that culture, now you're in the will. Now you are co-heirs of the estate. Now you are elevated. Okay? This is the idea. And in our current woke culture and cultural wars that we have now, people would be offended that, oh, how dare you think that they need to be elevated so much. 
Oh, phooey. Paul is honoring every one of us, all of us, who were broken by sin, rebels to God. And what Paul is saying, you now have the spirit of sonship, every one of you, male or female, you are now elevated to firstborn son. That's who you are. And so, ladies, I just want you to know that. What Paul is striving to do is to honor you. And, and men, you too. The journey for the man is a little bit less, isn't it? The journey for the woman was even more. The woman who in that culture was considered nothing. Didn't have a vote, didn't have a voice, couldn't own property. A whole series of things dependent upon your culture in that, in that Jewish conservative culture. And Paul takes that and raises it up. So I'm going to use that term of sonship because it means we're the, in first position in the will. So what does it mean to be a son of God? What does this sonship idea really mean? It's interesting because there's four things that I want to share with you on this because as Paul explains it, and if you're looking in your Bible or you have your phone open or something like that, verse 15, right? If you're looking at verse um, oh, 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship and we, by him we call upon Abba, Father, the spirit of sonship. The first point of this is it's a permanent promise. It's a permanent promise. You know, it's interesting. Every time we think of slavery, if we use the word slavery, we immediately think of the Civil War and the conditions of those who were human property. We call that chattel slavery. Chattel slavery means you were piece of property, and it could be, it was not true in all cases, but could be that your children then became slaves and their children after them. In Jewish culture, that was not the case. And in, certainly in Roman culture, you were able to buy your freedom. Almost all slave owners uh, gave, um, paid a certain amount of money to their slaves. They could gain their freedom over time. Sometimes they would gain their freedom through a great act of heroism for their, for their master or their owner. Sometimes they would do it through acts of service or, or they would make their own and their owners would let them sell things and they would acquire that money and they could purchase their freedom either through an act of nobility or faithful service. Oops, sorry, got to be careful. Um, good. Faithful service or because of their honesty or their love for the family, they were granted um, forgiveness. In Jewish culture, in the Torah, every 50 years was called a year of jubilee. And every slave was manumitted. Every slave was emancipated. Immediately, their, their, their freedom was given. If they had become a slave the week before, they were free. Every seven years, a certain amount of limited freedom was granted to slaves. Indentured servants and slaves were given. So the, the idea of that you were born into slavery and it perpetuated and it was a forever condition is a foreign idea to Scripture. It is nowhere to be found in Scripture. And it's, so it's a concept that we have to sometimes overcome in our own history uh, in the United States. What's interesting about this, therefore, I hope that that context helps you understand this verse. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. In other words, that is not a permanent condition. But you receive the spirit of sonship. That is a permanent condition. So first thing I want you to hear is that's the kind of commitment God has made to you. Parents, you know this, right? When do your kids stop being your kids? Never happens, does it? Shouldn't happen, I don't think. Your kids never stop being your kids. You're always their parent. Now, your role changes. I get that. We get that. 
And I used to laugh about this because my wife was so faithful about praying for our kids as they were little. She'd pray every day when she made a bed. You know, we'd pray for them at night. We'd take them to church. We'd be in Sunday school. We'd do devotions. All those things, Lent and Advent, do all of those things, confirmation, first communion, all of those different things. And we thought we prayed for them a lot then. Then they grew up. And I think my wife prays for them twice as much in the most loving way. She's just my hero. But she prays for them over and over and over, constantly, constantly praying for our kids. And our kids, kids, you should know that. And if, even if you're a 60-year-old kid or 70-year-old kid, you should know. Your parents prayed for you always because you never stop being their kid. That's the promise, number one, of being son, child of God. It's a permanent promise, a promise which God will never go back on. Though we may be faithless, he will remain faithful. God cannot deny himself. It's a permanent promise. The other promise is interesting. It's slave to fear. And that fear is a fear of loss, of abandonment, that fear of, of not being valuable. And this permanent promise speaks directly against that, that God always, always will keep his promise. It's a permanent promise. Second thing is this. You know, I remember also when I worked at the Terrace restaurant as a waiter and, you know, and as a bartender and so forth, and I'd jump in as a line cook here and there. And anytime I could make some money just to pay school bills and stuff was great. But it was interesting. Be careful what you pray for. I was hoping for a promotion. There's a little more money. Be careful what you pray for. Promotion was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Because all of a sudden now I had to be the boss on the people who were late and the people who were trying to get other people to punch their time card for them and the other people who were falsifying evidence or stealing stuff from the refrigerator or the freezer or trying to outfit their grandmother's china cabinet or, you know, whatever it was. And then all of a sudden I had to be that role. I wish I had never asked for it. I wish I'd never asked for it. It's interesting because in that setting, none of those people, really, none of those people that I worked, because I was there for months in the summer and went back to school. I worked through the summers, made my money for school and went back. I didn't have a relationship with those people. And I think that was one of the reasons the manager maybe gave it to me because he knew that if I, was, uh, if I was friends, really good friends with people, it would be much harder. It was already really hard and they didn't listen to me very well. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? The second one is there's a relational obligation. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. It's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Sometimes we seem to think in the Christian faith there's no obligation. And, and I, you don't hear me use the word obedience very often in Christian. And it's not a false word. It's a good word. But truly, we teach our dogs to be obedient. But we want our children to obey out of love, don't we? That's a different thing. It's not so much an obedience as it is a shared character, a shared value, a shared passion. That's what we're longing for from children, aren't we? Not just that they obey. You have a big enough stick, you can make anybody obey. We long for people to follow because they share the same passion and value that we have. And so it's interesting here because there is a relational obligation. When I was the boss, when I got the promotion, they didn't listen to me. They didn't know I loved them. And I, to be honest, I don't think I did. I mean, I didn't hate them. I didn't care. It was your job. But you know as well as I do, when you have someone who has your back, someone who you know has your best interest in art, who you know loves you and would sacrifice for you, what wouldn't you do for them? What? Seriously. Are you with me on this? 
What wouldn't you do? And that's the relationship Jesus is constantly calling. Jesus doesn't pull out his whip and say, follow me. Jesus says, here's what I'm doing for you. This is how much I love you. I long for you to follow me. Come with me. Come with me on this journey. And so there is a relational obligation. And it changes the nature of the obligation. Now it's like, cool, let's go. Let's go do this. Third thing on here is, and oh, and the thing is, the relational obligation is so powerful because it's the one he made first to us. I will always be your loving father. I will always be your lo- the one who's dearly in love with you, the groom to the bride. I'm making this commitment to you. I love to say that to wedding couples when they do their vows. You know, it's cool. They stand up here and they go, and I tell them, here's essentially what you're saying. Today I choose you and I'm going to choose you every day after this no matter what. I hope you say the same thing back to me, but even if you don't, this is what I'm saying. I choose you. And that's what God said first. It's interesting. It's so interesting because the groom always speaks first in the marriage ceremony. It's not a male thing. It's that God speaks first to his beloved bride. And says, today I choose you. And he said that to you and to me. He says, today I choose you. You are my very own. There's a relational obligation. That's another thing, what it means to be a child of God. Sonship. Third thing. So my buddy Michael, it's interesting. I have talked to my brother who's down in the Houston area and uh, my, my good friend Michael who's out is in Long Island. And they have, I've kind of ch- touched base with them a s- couple times. And it's tough in Houston. There's some tough things happening in that. In, not every hospital is overrun, but several of them are at capacity. And they're anxious about what's going on. My brother's kind of filled me in on that because he's tried to make calls and visit and he's not able to do so. So he's got his own members that are impacted by this. So again, I tell you week after week, please give thanks for how blessed we are in Southeast Idaho. Please give thanks. And then pray for strength and grace should the wave come this way. We have no idea. None of us know, right? How's your crystal ball been working in this whole thing? Right? Mine's not been working real well. Um, so we continue to give thanks. Uh, but we pray for others who are hurting because it was tough times in New York City. It was tough times. Don't let anyone fool you. But we're blessed. Not every part of the country is that way. And so it's interesting because my buddy Michael, we were laughing on the phone the other day because um, uh, we were going to go there in November for a wedding for his daughter. We were so excited to go and they are pushing it off a year, you know. A lot of families are doing that, a lot of folks. And we were laughing about the deli that he grew up in. So his father owned an, an Amer- Italian-American deli. And, and the kids all worked in it like dogs. I mean, they just worked and worked and worked and worked. It was family business. But it, it was not a tiny little hole in the wall. I mean, it was a little, small supermarket. And, and I was the kid who I took the bike and I delivered things for them. All summer long, when I was 12, 11, 12, 13. And I'd take, you know, Toblerone and prosciutto and I'd take you know, whatever it was, take it to the houses and do that. So I'd, I'd show up, you know, about 10, you know, and I'd leave about three or four. Well, Michael and David and Vito and Joe, all the boys, they had to show up at six. And they didn't leave till about 10, all summer long. I wonder who was in the will, me or them, right? They're the sons. You know, they're the children. They were the ones who were sons. And so what I love about this is, by him, but wait, there's more. 
here's the cool thing. When we think about this, what does it mean to be sons? We often think, because people often think, well, if I stop being a slave and I'm a son, then I have it easy. No, it doesn't work like that, does it? Now you're the child. Now you're the son. But here's the cool thing. But the father treats you differently than the employee. The father treats you differently than the servant or the slave. But God commits all things to his children. God entrusts all things to his children. So there's even more than just a relational obligation. And the last thing I want to say on this one is, so, is this one. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. And I've been referencing this throughout. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's a stunning statement when you stop to think of it. Co-heirs with Christ. You know, it's interesting. I wondered about this. You know, one of, when we were looking at building the high school and we were kind of contemplating how could we pay for it and stuff, I actually explored this with some people. I said, hey, we have some long-term commitments to our church and the school. People have written us in the will. Can we borrow against that? And they laughed at me. They chuckled. They said, no, you can't borrow against that. Unless it's an irrevocable thing. But even then, we have no idea what that estate will be, finally, when it's disposed. So no, you can't borrow against the will. So it was interesting. When we did decide to build the mech and the congregation decided to do this, the event center, the story that's behind that, very briefly, is the auditorium district was looking for some place to build this event center, which has turned out to be a tremendous success. Even now, they're really firing up again. It's doing well. But no one could loan, no one would loan the money. You know why? Because they could only commit to paying payments for one year at a time. So nobody could sign a mortgage. They couldn't sign a mortgage, like a 20 or 30 year lease. You get that? So they couldn't commit to it. So no bank would loan the money. And we came to them repeatedly and said, you know what? We think we have a way to make this work. Our bank will loan us money. And then we'll build it for you. And you know why that worked? It was because we knew the people who ran the auditorium district. We knew the people who were in, involved here in Pocatello. We knew who were involved. We had relationship with them. And our bank, our bank, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, had a relationship with us. You see how that worked? So we had a trust relationship with our neighbors. And our bank had a trust relationship with us. But they didn't have a relationship with each other. Let me tell you how cool that is for all of you. How many times might that work out for you where God has a relationship of trust with you, which allows you to have a relationship of love with someone else? And so what God is longing to do here is you're in the will. God does let us borrow against the will. And this is what's so cool. You're not borrowing. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that one in chapter 15 of Luke? And so the younger son comes to his father. Jesus tells his story. And forgive me for my paraphrase, but he essentially says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my portion of the inheritance. I mean, I'm adding to it. But that's essentially what it was, he was implying. I wish you were dead. Give me my portion of the inheritance. The father does not say, I'll loan you money against the value. The father says here. Our father has said that to each one of us. Here you go. Not somewhere off in heaven someday. Right now. Here's your inheritance. Because I love you. He squandered it, didn't he? But it never made him cease to be a child of God. He was welcomed home with his humble heart, his repentant spirit, and restored as a son of God, as the son of the master. 
That's the commitment our Savior has made to us. And that's what it means to have sonship. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from Paul to the church. Folks who desperately needed to know that in the midst of fear, that we don't have to worry about our position with you. There are hurts and there are losses in our world, Lord. And yet you are always permanently committed to us. You have already written us into the will. You have already elevated us because you have made an obligation. You have made a commitment, a permanent, eternal commitment to every one of us. You count us all your children. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Strengthen our faith, Lord, that we might follow you and walk, walk with you in joy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions or comments about this sermon, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.